recording? Is it working? We're recording. Hi, I need to make a correction. Uh, in the last episode of this podcast, uh, I totally misspoke, fucked up. I got my horror movies uh, from the 80s, starting with the letter P, mixed up. I'm so embarrassed. I said that it was the plot of Pet Cemetery that uh, the cemetery that was recently unearthed on Race Street reminded me of. That is untrue, of course. Pet Cemetery was about a cemetery that brings creatures back to life. What I meant to say was Poltergeist, which is the movie, spoilers, sorry, about uh, the headstones of a cemetery being moved, but not the actual bodies, which then proceed to make the life of a suburban family living hell. Oh, man, I, you almost blew it. I, I, we had a good thing going. Man, I'm just really, I feel really bad because, uh, you know, I have a lot of horror aficionado friends uh, and I'm a big horror movie fan. So my bad, mea culpa. Um, <laughs> but I guess we should move on with the podcast despite my error. <laughs> <laughs> We should especially move on with it because it's actually been going really well. Uh, we chatted on iTunes. Um, we cracked the top 100 oh, in, my goodness. in the arts category. I know, very exciting. Um, <laughs> this is like when I charted in industrial on mp3.com <laughs> in 1997. Oh my God. <laughs> Charting in the arts podcast charts. Amazing. <laughs> um, no, no, but really, I um, am super grateful to everyone who is reviewing us and liking us and giving us five-star ratings. Um, please continue doing that. We would love the word of this podcast to spread. Um, you can also follow us uh, on social media. Yeah, Melissa's been doing a great job of really curating a lot of uh, photos and other things that uh, we've taken along the way. Um, and uh, it, it really helps uh, put pictures to what it is that you've been hearing about yeah um, uh, so you can go to uh facebook we're under uh the bog house podcast all one word at facebook and on twitter we are just the bog house and on instagram it's the same as facebook so the bog house podcast on instagram um so follow us there and like our stuff and review us on facebook too i don't even know what that does but yeah it's like uh being on patreon but without having to pay yeah, but actually, we're not getting any money for doing this, so no, no. <laughs> we're just crazy. <laughs> um, speaking of Facebook, actually, this week, a friend and colleague of mine, Erin, uh, contacted me. She was a theater director um, here in Philadelphia, uh, although she's moved, um, and she had a story, a brief story, about an interaction with Joseph Grasso, uh, the former owner of the theatre. So I asked her to put it into audio format so we could play it on the show. And here it is. Um, so in 2012, I was the producing artistic director of a small Shakespeare in the Park company and was gearing up for the summer season and looking for a place to hold our auditions. And so I'd found a number of places off of Google and was calling around to see what their pricing was. And one of the places I'd found was Grasso's Magic Theater. And it was intimate. It was well-located. It seemed like it would be a good spot. Except when I called and spoke to Joe Grasso, the prices he quoted me were way more expensive than anywhere else I was looking. Um, I'm assuming maybe because he was having money problems at the time. So anyway, I 
said, thank you very much. I'm afraid it's out of our budget. We'll have to pass. And he came back with, well, you know, you sound like a nice girl. Why don't you come down to the theater? I'll give you a tour myself and we'll see if we can come up with some sort of a deal. So knowing what I know now, I was not his target demographic, but it kind of creeped me out a bit. Just the tone of voice, it just really raised my hackles and uh, just creeped me out. Uh, So I said, thank you. No, I think we'll pass. I hadn't thought anything more about it. Uh, As it turned out, I actually moved to Connecticut in 2014 uh, to work at a theater up here uh, around the time, I guess, that he was getting arrested and it hit the news. So I completely missed this news story and hadn't thought anything more about it until I was listening to the podcast and realized that this was the same place that had creeped me out a number of years ago. So just another little element of ick to add to the original story. Uh, Fortunately, we found a lovely place to audition and everything worked out well. But uh, yeah, it was pretty gross. All right. Thanks so much. Love listening to the podcast. Can't wait to hear more. Yuck. That's I'm so (laughs) grateful that she listened to her instincts and said, yeah, no, I don't want to cut a deal with you because I sound cute on the phone. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, It's like, no wonder we hadn't heard of this place Uh, before we bought it. If you're overcharging for a venue uh, as a kind of opportunity to take advantage of. Yeah. Anyway, I also just wanted to I wanted to revisit the Grasso thing because I wanted to give everyone um the somewhat infuriating uh, end of the terrible story that led to this building going on sale. So I think where we left off with Grasso, he had been arrested for molesting a child of 13. Uh, he was caught by his wife. Um, this was in 2014. So um, just before the building went up for sale, it, it w- the Magic Theatre was shut down because he was caught and arrested. Um so when they arrested him, you know, they, they interviewed the girl and uh, based on her interview, they charged him with 11 counts, um, including uh, five, sorry, six felony counts mm-hmm. and five misdemeanors um, related to indecent assault of a minor. Um, he, when he, after he was charged with all of that, he actually pled not guilty to yeah. the charges. And... Um, it's my opinion, I mean, this isn't reported anywhere, but, you know, based on how legal stuff, criminal legal stuff works, that uh, it's my opinion he pled not guilty to force the district attorney to give him a better deal because the district attorney, being a compassionate person, would w- rather have him plead guilty to a lesser charge so that the little girl wouldn't have to testify in court about what happened to her um because obviously it's an incredibly traumatic thing for anyone who's been assaulted to testify in court let alone a child who's been sexually assaulted um so you know there were some months went by and there was no news about it because i obviously during this period i was checking the news about joe grasso all the time to see what happened in this case like how did it turn out And finally, at the end of the year in 2014, there was some news that he had worked out a deal with the district attorney and pled guilty to two charges. Of the 11. Of the 11. One misdemeanor charge 
and one felony charge of endangering the welfare of children. Um, and his sentence for this charge was uh, essentially 233 days from the day that he was arrested. He was granted parole in December of that year. He spent 233 days in jail, which is seven and a half months for this crime. He basically got time served. Yeah. He was released in December of 2014. So just think about that for a second, because this makes my blood fucking boil. He molested this girl for about a year. This is what she said when she was first taken to the station and during her forensic interview. He molested her for a year and he got seven and a half months in prison. And maybe the the most insulting thing, I think, at the end of this as well, um, I learned a lot about uh, sex offender registries as a result of this. I didn't really know that much about it. So when you register as a sex offender, everybody knows that, you know, people who commit sexual crimes have to do this. Uh, there are three different tiers of sex offender uh badness right it's like one two and three one is the lowest level two is medium and three is the highest level and one of the differences between tier two and tier three is that um if you molest a child under the age of 13 that's worse that's like level three if it's 13 and up so like 13 to 18 that's or 13 to 16 that's tier two as part of his plea agreement, he got to register as a tier two sex offender, even though he had been molesting her, according to her statements, for a year and she was 13 when he was caught. Right. So, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just so angry. I was so angry about this because the general assumption in the, in the population is that if somebody gets caught molesting a child, oh, they're going away for life. We're never going to hear about them again. And, oh, it's terrible. Right. Everyone just assumes, oh, you know, what is he, 69? He's going to go away until he's dead. No. He was out of jail in seven and a half months and, uh, and he's living freely in the Philadelphia area right now. Which you can look up on the Megan's Law website. Yeah, you can actually look him up if you really want to. Okay, let's get off that topic and go back to where we were. (laughs) (laughs) Take a seat. You're in the bug house. Matt, where did we leave off? <laughs> where did we leave off? Was it um we had just been informed of some of the uh the history behind what it is that we had unearthed. Mm-hmm. Um we we had just had our minds blown a little bit uh, about the significance of what it is. Yeah, that, on Facebook. <laughs> that that we were just digging up for fun cuz we're crazy people. Um but it turns out uh there's there was actually uh, a lot more to what we had than uh, I think we bargained for. Mm-hmm. So uh, the archaeologist that we were speaking to is Rob named Hunter. Rob Hunter, um, and uh, he's the editor of 
this journal that we mentioned, Ceramics in America. Yeah, it's this really nice uh, hardcover journal. It's uh, produced annually, used by museum curators, art historians. It's um, it's really beautiful. Like it's a bound coffee table book, essentially. It's like an inch thick that they release every year. Right, full of in-depth articles with wonderful color photography uh-huh. um, and some some uh, historical articles too. Um, some older uh, things get published. It's it's really really um a, a, a fascinating book i'm totally talking too much <laughs> so anyway so anyway um well well another thing about rob that i thought was really fascinating is um his partner michelle erickson um he mentioned his partner michelle in the messages because he said that they might both come up to philadelphia and so i googled michelle because uh, I was sort of interested in what she does. She is an artist, a ceramicist, and um, she first got interested in historical uh, reconstructions of ceramics that are found in Colonial Williamsburg, where she lives. So she discovers or rediscovers old production techniques and manufacturing techniques for ceramics from the 1700s and then replicates them and creates these beautiful, amazingly accurate historical reproductions for museums and for collectors and uh, so that you can see what these items looked like when they were whole or when they were new. But something amazing that she's done with this incredible uh, skill is that she uses those old techniques and combines them with new forms and new ideas and contemporary sort of uh, artistic statements um, and creates her own art, her own ceramics, which I am totally fucking in love with. <laughs> I'm so in love with this. This, so good. this was like a revelation to me. Um, I think maybe in part because some of what I do as a composer is take old forms, Baroque forms, which are 16 and 1700s, and recontextualize them myself with modern ideas. For example, you know, my probably my biggest piece, the Gonzales Cantata, takes the Baroque Cantata form and applies it to current American politics. And Michelle is essentially doing exactly the same thing, but with ceramics. So... One of her more obvious examples is she made a chamber pot, like a pot that you piss in, and she put a transfer of Trump's face on the inside of it. I mean, <laughs> so great. Um, and what else? Well, really, you should go look. There's a whole series of things where she takes this incredible technical ability. And another thing I love about this is she also shares the information about how she makes this. Mm-hmm. I like this idea of getting away from uh, the rarification of, of this information. Right. But she, she takes these forms. Uh, there are these squirrels uh, mm-hmm. that, that were this this classic... Um, finial. I, I yeah. think it's like a finial, like a decoration that goes on a post of some kind. And uh, a, a very American finial. Right, like an early American thing. These squirrels were all over the place in colonial America. Um, and she, she made uh, modern reproductions with, I think, a grenade. And, right, a uh, little gun. Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> um, and these, these are just things that come off the top of my head. If mm-hmm. you actually go search for Michelle Erickson's work. So it's work, Michelle, you can go to her website. It's Michelle with two L's, M I C H E L L E. Erickson, uh, and she spells Erickson, E-R-I-C-K-S-O-N, ceramics.com. 
you can see a bunch of her work. The one that totally blew my mind is actually in the official 9-11 Memorial Museum in New York City. And this one, I mean, it's like so many different layers of meaningful. She's created these Delft China bowling pins that are set at an angle so they look like they're about to fall over uh there's like these two bowling pins and then on the faces on the bodies of the bowling pins she's put uh transfer decorations of the twin towers that were destroyed in 9-11 and then on the head of the bowling pin she has a little transfer that looks like the screen of a burqa that the taliban force women to wear in afghanistan i mean if you think through all of the implications of a porcelain bowling pin and, you know, the destruction of these pins and what that means, it's just, it just totally blew my mind. I was so impressed. A lot of her work just has so many different subtle layers that come into this this wonderful package that uh, I will do no justice describing in, into a microphone Yeah, this here. is like actually the Check shittiest media idea is to like do a <laughs> podcast about a shit ton of visual things. It's like, okay. <laughs> anyway, um, so I was actually more jazzed about meeting Michelle. I was super like, oh my yeah. God, I, hope, I really hope he brings Michelle. This would be amazing. Um, but I was also super nervous Um, Because once he talked about the Bonin and Morris bowl being extremely important, I started freaking out about, like, did I clean it wrong? Did I fuck it up? Yeah, we were talking about Melissa just going right into it, cleaning things up scraping off dirt uh right. stripping away yeah, layers I, of right i like soaked it in like a dilute muriatic acid uh to get that brown horrible stain off it so i could see the designs on it um with the end result i think i started actually with vinegar and then moved to muriatic acid and with the end result that you could still smell really faintly in the it smelled like vinegar for months yeah you could smell the vinegar mm-hmm. <laughs> so i was like Oh shit. What if I've what if I've really fucked this up? What if I've destroyed it? What if I've like ruined a priceless artifact? I was so nervous. It ends up taking a couple months for us to organize our schedules so that Rob and Michelle can come visit. Yeah, and we're all super busy people, like all four of us. Yeah, um, you uh, just started. Yeah, I, I just started my new role, uh switching over from a developer to a, a solutions engineer or sales engineer, which Man, I was doing a lot of travel for work. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was supposedly finishing my PhD, but actually I was probably just spending a lot of time on the construction site watching what was going on and helping out wherever I could and putting out fires. Not literal fires, like metaphorical fires. Um, and Rob and Michelle, of course, were super busy with their own lives. Like they're amazing, you know, um, artist and archaeological dealer in demand. <laughs> yeah. Ultimately, they, they do end up coming up to our house in Downingtown, uh, I think I want to say in late September of 2016. Mm-hmm. And they went through our finds and uh, all of the Tupperware containers that we had full of these artifacts. And uh, 
we got to hear firsthand from real archaeologists who are in our house the significance and the importance and the background behind um, so many of the pieces that we owned. Uh, it was amazing. Rob would pull something out and uh, to say he has an encyclopedic knowledge would be an understatement. It's crazy. It's like, I want to be like, you're making shit up right now. Because he'll pull out a shirt that's like the size of, you know, a finger joint and be like, hmm, 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 1783. And you're like, <laughs> seriously, dude? I mean, you could say anything and I would believe him because like, what do I know? You know, <laughs> but it was incredible. Um, so they, one of the cool connections um, that they made was with our our bull that uh, you may remember us talking about finding two shirts, one that said navigation and another one that said trade. And we actually found some more of that bowl, like the side of that bowl. Um, you can see pictures on our social media accounts. Um, so it's sort of a, a bowl about the size of like a ramen bowl. Um, and it's done in that chinoiserie style. So it's got a white glaze with blue decoration on it. And uh, on the outside of the bowl, there are these chinoiserie looking flowers they look like peonies and on the inside we could see trade navigation and that's all but rub and michelle were able to instantly tell what it was you may remember in a previous episode i talked about how we copied a lot of the uh, styles of photography from archaeological dig that was going on at the museum of the american revolution uh, around the time that we were doing this uh, and one of the things that really brought that to my attention was a lot of news around this bowl uh, that uh, was being reassembled. So the bowl was from the 1700s, right? And uh, and it was about the same size and shape as the bowl, that this bowl. Yeah, this it had similar floral bowl. decoration on the outside. It had a picture of a ship in the inside and it said, success to the Trifena. Uh, it turns out the Trifena was a ship that was uh, doing trade between uh, the colonies. Um, and this bowl is one of a, a common style of the era mm -hmm. where when you've got uh, a big venture going on and you're kicking things off uh, you you commission a bowl to celebrate that mm -hmm. uh, and you pour uh, liquor into that bowl and uh, you use it as like a punch bowl uh, that you toast with um, mm -hmm. so it's like good luck to this ship the Trifina yeah um, and they like found the whole bowl I mean it was broken but they found the whole bowl on the site where the museum was about to be built and they thought this bowl was so cool that they commissioned an amazing reconstruction histo of historical ceramics artist, Michelle Erickson, to recreate the bowl in the original style and with the original decorations. So when they were here, they were able to really clarify that it probably the pieces that were missing probably just said success too. Right. So we had the part of the bowl that said trade and navigations, but the whole bottom of the bowl said success to trade and navigation and so all yeah. right awesome <laughs> we have a punch bowl <laughs> that's so cool um some of the other stuff that uh we were able to confirm with them um you might remember i talked about having a cute little oh my gosh our cat is interrupting us inky so i introduced uh moonlight in the first episode our youngest cat inky is a black and white tuxedo cat and uh she was born in our neighbor's shed in west poplar oh here she comes she's jumped on matt's lap um and uh she um is a psychopath she is without a doubt the most um uh 
compassionless and um you know she's but she's also the cutest cat that we own so i guess we let her get away with a whole lot i'll post pictures you'll see she's getting in the way of our podcast right now i should really wear something other than this tweed jacket for those photos (laughs) it's okay nobody minds it's a podcast okay back to the teapot so um when uh, when we cleared out the whole privy, one of the items that I was cradling in my lap on the way back home was this tiny little teapot uh, about the size of my fist, yeah. really. It was like really small and it was jet black and shiny. And the clay, because it was a little bit broken so you could see inside the clay, the clay was this deep purple color. Um, Anyway, it turns out that this teapot, because of the color of the clay and the style and everything, can be pinpointed. Um, Its place of origin was the Jackfield uh, region of England. So they had a a ceramics manufacturing factory in Jackfield, which is a little town on a river, of course. And uh, the clay has a very particular color. And we were actually able to find pictures online of perfect examples of this exact teapot. What's really interesting about it is it has three little legs and the legs kind of look like elephant feet, but there are three of them. (laughs) (laughs) So a three-legged little tiny elephant teapot, it's adorable. Speaking of manufacturing pottery, Rob and Michelle confirmed that what we have is definitely kiln furniture amongst the rest of our uh, goods. Yeah, yeah. We had picked up a couple of things out of our privy that, that... were just really weird looking. The most obvious examples of these are these uh, sort of square sticks. So they were like rectangular prisms. Um, How do I describe them? It's almost like you get clay in blocks like this these days, actually. Oh, Um, sure. Like, uh, you know. From the art shop. Yeah, yeah. So so it's like a, like a, the same shape as like a pastel stick, but made of clay. Uh, And there were, there are like little globs of glaze on them. So these sticks would be used to help steady and stack pottery in the kiln while they're being fired. And the globs of glaze on them are from when the glaze that's on the pots drips down onto the onto these little pieces of clay that are there just to steady everything. And these are called kiln furniture. Yeah, this seemed to be, uh, if, if I interpreted it correctly, it seemed to be of some interest to Rob because there aren't really any records of potters in, in this neighborhood. Right. Um, and the only real reason that you would have kiln furniture in a privy is there should be a kiln nearby somewhere because there's no reason to transport kiln furniture over a long distance to throw it in your toilet. So yeah. <laughs> um, who knows exactly where it came from, but it was really interesting. We'll come back to that in a second because yeah. there's more to that part. Um what else? There was also, um, and this isn't something that Rob and Michelle confirmed. This is just something that uh, that it was kind of plainly obvious. We found these interesting pieces that uh, it took us a second to figure out what they were, but it's a knife handle and then a whole hunk of rusted rust on the pot where the blade would be because the blade has completely oxidized and disintegrated in the privy, but the handle is intact because the handle is made of bone. Uh, and we know this because we found several of these bone-handled knives, um, and some of them we only found half of, so you can see the sort of spongy interior. Right. It's definitely, like, bone. I don't know what kind of bone. 
it's but probably, it's been you know carved into a shape and decorated with a you know scrimshaw on the outside. Right. It's it's uh, really neat. It, they're really really cool. Um, and also in the kind of you know utilitarian I guess category, we found a bunch of tobacco pipes, um, sort of made of white clay, looking very uh, Gandalf kind of. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's funny. We didn't find any that we could assemble into a single pipe. We found lots and lots of stems, uh, lots of a bowls. Of bowls, right. Um, but none none that all came together. And what's interesting about these pipes is they were essentially disposable in the era. And uh, it's really no surprise that people were smoking pipes in the bathroom because I can't imagine <laughs> what it smelled like. In yeah, there. <laughs> I would definitely have taken up pipe smoking just so I could smoke a bowl while I'm in the bathroom. I can't imagine. Yeah. But it's yeah. funny because I think about this now and I'm like, oh, the equivalent of this is probably those stupid plastic cigar holders that people that you see littered all over the streets around here. You know, yeah. I'm talking about like those cigarello plastic yeah. things and they smoke the cigarello or whatever. And then the plastic thing gets thrown on the ground. So it's kind of like we've collected a bunch of this trash <laughs> that's in a toilet. We're like, wow, how cool this is in someone's mouth. And probably if human civilization lasts another 300 years, people will be doing that with, you know, cigar holders. Uh, fun fact, if you go looking up this sort of stuff about pipes in the 18th century, you'll see people have worn circular holes in their teeth from biting down yeah. on these clay pipes. Yeah, yeah. So you have a little pipe holder built into your into your tooth line. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just just something to go Google while you're out there. Um, what else? We uh, Oh, um, milk pans. Okay. Yes. So one of the first bowls that I kind of put together the whole shape of, actually, and it's not the prettiest bowl in the world. It's kind of, it's a redware bowl, so it's made out of that local red clay, and it's got stripes on the inside in sort of cream and green. This is actually uh, this is kind of getting technical. Maybe it's boring, but I think it's fascinating. This is called slip. So what they do is they'd create the bowl out of clay and then they'd glaze it in in sort of a color, sort of a clear wash, and then they would get some colored glazes and put it into a vessel of some kind and drip it in a circular pattern around so it sort of forms stripes around the inside of the bowl. And sometimes they would have a vessel that was specially shaped, almost looks like an ocarina, so you have several different holes. So when you drip it, it's forming even stripes all the way around the bowl. Um, this is such a common decoration technique. It's called slipware as well as redware because it's so common to have mm. this, this technique for decorating redware bowls. And the shape of this bowl is sort of a large shallow pan uh, what you would do is put cow's milk fresh milked from the cow into the pan and let it sit for a while so that the cream would rise to the top of the pan and then you could easily separate the cream from the non-cream milk underneath for use in cooking or drinking or whatever have you and here is where I always digress when I tell this story <laughs> To change topic just a little bit, but not actually that much, the glazes that were on the inside of this milk pan, and in fact, almost all redware that was produced in this period, yep. contains a shit ton of lead. <laughs> 
so much lead that in the 1780s there was a newspaper article warning the population of nascent America. Oh shit! All of our potters are dying of nerve disorders. Hey, I just remembered you guys. Lead is poison. Did you know that it is possible, I think? Someone should write a book on this, or maybe it's already been written and I haven't found it. Someone should write a book on the history of our species, our stupid, dumbass <laughs> species, that, that is purely a series of examples of us realizing lead is poisonous and then immediately forgetting again and poisoning ourselves with lead. Like how many, how, so how many times this happened, right? I don't know. So uh, weren't the aqueducts lined with lead or something? Right. right. Like, the reason that plumbing yeah. is called plumbing, the, the English word plumbing is from the Latin word plumbum <laughs> for, for lead, lead because plumbing in the Roman times was often lined with lead. It's a really like easy metal to work with. It's very soft and versatile and also poison. Okay, so then everyone in the Roman Empire is dying of lead poisoning. Well, everyone, but like people are getting lead poisoning, right? So at some point we're like, oh shit. Hey, everyone, stop using lead in the water. It makes us dumb and violent. Okay, so then wait a little while. What do we have? We have people putting lead in makeup and eating bits of lead because it makes you pale, right? Like right. through the Renaissance and, and, you know, in the Middle Ages and whatever, they're like putting, literally putting lead paint on their skin to make themselves look sick because sick is cool, I guess. I mean, you know. It's the original heroin chic. <laughs> exactly. So great. And then everyone's like, oh, you know what? That lead makes you dumb and and violent we should stop that that's stupid so we kind of stop that but no this this whole thing continues because then we put lead in house paint right and i mean if that wasn't bad enough let's uh put it in our the fuel that goes into internal combustion engines let's atomize lead yes let's burn it and put it into the air that our children breathe. You know, I'm from Australia, and we didn't get rid of leaded petrol until, like, the 90s, I think. So I grew up with leaded petrol. It's probably why I'm so dumb and violent, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. And I'm mad about it and kind of violent about it. So, you know, there we go. And then we have, we have Flint, Michigan, with lead in their pipes that the water, the, you know, the new water is dissolving into their water supply which is creating all kinds of problems you know and even right here in our own backyard uh in philadelphia there's a lot of construction happening around old factories and they've found that there's just incredible amounts of lead that's just been kind of buried into the rubble and soil yeah Uh, it's it's astonishing we're just such a stupid species we're just so like you know definition of insanity and all the rest of it so is this where you go into about the war yes So, here's the thing, right? Here, during this whole period of the 1700s, everyone in the colony of America, pretty much, is eating off of redware plates. They're storing their food in redware, you know, gallon jugs. We're just constantly surrounded by this stuff that we are ingesting. And the glazes on this redware stuff, on, on these redware items, it's not the hardest glaze in the world. It chips off pretty easily and you're eating it. So there was several generations of early Americans who are all 
dumb and violent as a result of this. And this kind of makes me, and this is my own personal theory, this is not backed up by real any real hard evidence, but it kind of makes me question some of the background to the Revolutionary War itself. <laughs> like, a bunch of middle-class, kind of well-to-do white dudes in Boston throwing a fucking tantrum over taxes to the point where they are tarring and feathering people and dumping tea into the ocean... And then they start a whole war over taxes. I mean, it's not like the American people are really starving at this point, at least not the people fighting, right? These are mostly middle-class merchant-type folks, but they're all eating off of lead-lined plates. I'm, I'm just questioning. I'm just putting the question out there as to, like, whether we would have had such a violent birth as a country if we weren't all having our brains eaten away especially the parts of our brains that control impulse by lead it's an interesting theory uh, it's a question the timing is is really interesting yeah because then immediately after the revolutionary war we kind of stopped doing that yeah. so questions i have questions okay <laughs> <laughs> anyway um we should probably go to like the 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 money shot i suppose if you want to call it that oh, yeah everybody knows that's that's a porn word right <laughs> it's totally entered the the common vernacular you hear it on like cable news like oh here comes the money shot <laughs> so our ceramic money shot of course are the pieces that rob and michelle really came up to see which are the uh the bowl and the saucer that they identified as almost certainly coming from the bonin and morris factory do you remember when Rob picked out these pieces and looked at them for the first time, right? Do you remember? <laughs> yeah, so um, it's it's funny. Uh, Rob has a very... I, I often describe it, his demeanor, as almost engineer-like. Mm-hmm. Um, he's, he's a bit, I don't want to say stoic, but uh, very reserved. Yeah, yeah. I um, mean, he's, yeah, he's, he, he doesn't seem like a super emotional guy in person. Like, he's sort of... Um, I don't know if it's like a poker face or something because he's also a dealer in in antiques and stuff like that. But he's he's pretty like he doesn't have a huge affect. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but he he pulls these these Bonin and Morris items out and uh, he says, <laughs> I think he said exactly. Um, you can't really tell, but I'm actually very excited. <laughs> <laughs> so we're like, okay, that's cool. <laughs> like, um, and uh, and he explained to us that um, you know the bowl with the P on the bottom is definitely Bonin and Morris. Right. Um, the one with the little Chinese dude in a rice patty um, that didn't have the P on the bottom, but on the bottom of it there were these kind of uh, ugly mistakes, like these errors in the manufacture, mm-hmm. and that brought up the question of whether that saucer was a factory second essentially so same deal as we have now where you can get sort of cheap seconds at the outlet store right the idea here being it was actually in in a similar form to something he'd seen before and uh you would never export something uh that was this quality right it's kind of bad quality although it's a unique design so um but elements of the design were super similar to other sources that had been uh, manufactured so he was pretty sure even despite the lack of the uh the P maker's mark that this was also a Bonnet and Morris piece. But then we all, we we showed him everything we had. Like we basically went through everything piece by piece. It took hours. Um, and uh, I even showed him 
like I had these cases, you know, you can buy those crafts cases that have little dividers and you're supposed to put buttons and beards and things in them. I had bought a ton of those from Harbor Freight. like a tackle box. Yeah, like exactly. Yeah, I don't fish. So I'm like, it's a craft box. Um, (laughs) A tackle box that had a ton of tiny little shirts that couldn't match anything. Mm -hmm. Um, and he was looking over them, and then he sort of stopped. Yeah, he, he spotted one in particular that stood out, um, although he, he did enjoy a, a lot of the shell-edge stuff that we had. I, I know that's a favorite topic of his. <laughs> um, but he pulled out a little piece, and uh, he walked over to Michelle, and he said, D- do you know what this is? And she says, yes, I know what it is. <laughs> oh, well, what is it? <laughs> they had this whole dialogue where they were kind of, you know, trying to see who's going to say it first. They're being very coy. <laughs> <laughs> so let me describe this piece. It's um, it's probably about an inch, an inch and a half. Uh, and it's unglazed. So it's a piece of bisque, they call it in the pottery world. A, a cream-colored bisque. It looks like the bottom of a broken little tea bowl. Um back then just as if you go into a chinese restaurant now they give you these little teacups that don't have a handle to drink your tea from and at that time british people were drinking out of the same bowls the handle on a teacup is a british invention that comes later um so it looked like the bottom of a tea bowl but on the outside there's a decoration that looks almost like fish scales that are molded into the surface mm-hmm. um so he rob turns to us and says, this is also Bonnet and Morris. Yeah. Um, and we're like, what? What are you talking about? Like, that's crazy. What do you mean? Um, and he says, this is a piece of a quilted tea bowl, which was one of the forms that they had. Quilted is what they call the fish scale design. So a quilted tea bowl. But the twist is that it wasn't glazed. It hadn't been finished yeah, what was unusual about that is the Bonin and Morris factory that uh, we're aware of uh, historically has been known as being in sort of South Philly. Southwark yeah. area. Southwark, if you were to say it phonetically, but it's Southwark. What's really unusual is having this waster, this unglazed, rough piece of something that blew up in a kiln. Right. Because things blow up in kilns all the time. Anyone who's done pottery in like high school will remember the task of kneading the clay to get all the air bubbles out. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, an air bubble will expand and crack everything. So along with the kiln furniture that we found, uh, this this just adds more interesting questions about the neighborhood that this stuff was found in. Right. Because then, because, you know, what, how did this get into our toilet? Was somebody in the factory? That's a question I ask myself all the time. (laughs) (laughs) How is this possible? (laughs) Like, like, was someone... Oh, man. (laughs) Who did that? Was that me? (laughs) We're we're just devolving into a toilet (laughs) podcast now. Um, Like, was someone at the factory in Southwark uh, when this little piece blew up and for some reason stuck the piece in their pocket and then walked all the way up to our place and, you know, realized it was in the pocket and said, oh, I didn't mean to pocket that and threw it in the toilet. Like, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, Also, you got to remember, during this period... People didn't live that far away from where they worked. 
like the Southwark factory would have been about a mile, a mile and a half south of us. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't sound that long, that far away now. But back then, you would never have walked a mile and a half to get to work every day. So it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um so it's just kind of this open question. How did a waste piece from a Bon and Morris kiln end up in the toilet at our house? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh. Also, one of my favorite things about this interaction, um, and it turns out that this is actually a common thing, um, but a- a- as they went back and forth about you know the, the origin of this, uh, Rob turns to me and he says, do you mind if I put this in my mouth? <laughs> like the first thought that enters your head is like I've made a terrible mistake (laughs) I've invited people with some kind of weird fetish into my house what is going on (laughs) good play good play you got you got all this far just just to do that That, yeah impressive I was totally fooled but no (laughs) this this is actually a, a way to to really test the, the type of material that it is? Right. Uh, it's the lick test. Mm-hmm. And uh, and archaeologists who uh, excavate ceramics do this all the time because you can tell the difference by how well it sticks to your tongue. You can tell the difference between if something is bone, it's clearly not bone, or a rock. It's not a rock either. Um, or soft paste porcelain or hard paste porcelain. And the reason they were performing this lick test is because they had just discovered, but had not published the news yet, they had just discovered that true hard paste porcelain had been achieved by white people in America <laughs> around about this time, like very contemporaneous to this to all of these bowls being made. Well, right here in Philadelphia. Right here in Philadelphia. They knew this because they found an example of it in the Museum of the American Revolution dig, and they were about to publish this bowl, uh, publish information about this bowl, which would be heralded as like the holy grail of finds um, for for ceramics in colonial America. Uh, And they wanted to test to see if our stuff, particularly this waster piece, was hard paste porcelain. It was not. So that's, you know, it was not as exciting for them, but it was pretty exciting to watch them put it in their mouth. (laughs) 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 That's cool. (laughs) We get through all of what I really figured was the nice stuff. Yeah, I didn't want to show them too much of the redware because Mm -hmm. everything we'd read and from what they told us, like... You can find thousands of pieces of redware that look exactly like all of our pieces of redware. They're all over private collections and in museums, and you pretty much dig anywhere in Philadelphia, you're going to find it. At the same time, I did think there were a couple interesting ones. By interesting, I mean big. Big pieces. (laughs) Big is better. You want to see my big one? (laughs) Um, And and so after probably two hours of just this exhaustive brain dump, Mm -hmm. like we're, we're both sides of the equation are just kind of like overwhelmed lightheaded yeah because this is uh, we're learning so much about what we have Mm -hmm. Uh, rob and michelle are really interested in what we have um but uh yeah we're like coming toward the end and they're like all right well is that it do you have anything else and uh and i i forget which one of us it was that was like well i mean there is this one bowl this one big bowl that you haven't seen yet like, let me pull that out. 
So, um, so this is one that uh, it was actually literally one of the first pieces that I pulled out of the dirt. Yeah, it was in the Wawa bag. Yes. It was <laughs> It had this sort of like tiger stripey glaze on the inside. Mm-hmm. Um and we were able to pull a significant amount of it out yeah, actually. Yeah. And there was a lot of it was uh in the privy when mm-hmm. we excavated the privy and the pieces of it were really big because uh the the bowl itself was very thick like three quarters of an inch thick in some spots in the base. And it was probably the size of like a salad bowl, almost, you a know, big, like, a, like, like a serving. Right, like a big punch bowl. So we didn't really know what it was, but, you know, we hadn't seen examples of a bowl in this shape and size online. So we pull it out and, uh, <laughs> and call Rob over. Yeah, and uh, it, it's funny. I'd mentioned that he's got a pretty even temperament uh, in terms of how, how he's been describing these things. Uh, been really, you know, level-headed and, and cool talking about stuff. Uh, but Rob's eyes about bugged out of his head. <laughs> <laughs> Matt does this great impression. So he's like, he he looks at the bowl and he looks at us and he looks at the bowl and he goes, uh, I, uh, mm, holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> We're just the first time we'd seen him say anything <laughs> that exciting or swear in our presence. <laughs> um we're obviously uh, uh, again just don't have enough oxygen in our brains at this point so we're just like what is going on what do you mean holy shit what are you talking about (laughs) he says i can count on one hand the number of examples that i've seen of american punch bowls uh and none of them are as complete as this Mm. okay uh, all right uh cool Uh, he says uh then he follows up with this, I think, is one of the top ten things I've seen come out of the ground. <laughs> what the fuck? What the fuck? I don't know. Oh, oh man. man. Okay. <laughs> and then at some point in the conversation, I mean, we are just reeling from this encounter. Plus, like, you know, they're just really cool people. Michelle is so freaking cool. I want to be her when I grow up. It's ridiculous. Um but, you know, at one point, Rob turns to us and he's like, do you want to know how much some of this stuff is worth or do you not want to know? And I mean, of course, everybody's been asking us that anyway. Right. right. And, uh, you know, we look at each other and I'm like, yeah, I, I want to know. I mean, we're trying to save. We're trying to build a theater. We don't have much money. Yeah. At some point, the value of this stuff is going to become extremely pertinent, I assume, if it, it's valuable. You know, I have mm-hmm. no idea. And I have no idea what he's going to say to us you know, when mm-hmm. he asks this question or why he's hedging it, like, do you not want to know what this stuff is worth? <laughs> well, I think his concern there, and, and he did bring this up later, um, is uh, that we might sell this before any of it gets studied. Right. Which I'm like, no, no. Yeah, that's, that's not where our, our heart is. Right. We're not just crazy mercenaries. We actually care about this stuff. Yeah, um, you, you can study it and then we'll sell it. <laughs> or something. So, yeah, you know, He's pointing at the Bonnet and Morris bowl, the one with the P on the bottom, first of all. Yeah. And he says, well, you didn't find all of this bowl. You know, you can see pictures of it uh, online, but it's about two thirds there. We have, you know, the rim in a, in a spot uh, and we have the whole base, but the, it's missing some pieces of the side. And he says, look, if you had found all of the pieces of this bowl and were able to put it all completely together you're looking at a starting bid of tens of thousands of dollars. 
for this piece. And I sort of feel like I did the same thing as I did when the Russians said they were going to pay $700,000 for the property behind. Like, I'm just like, just freeze, just freeze. No reaction, (laughs) no reaction. Hold that face. (laughs) I cleaned it in my kitchen sink. (laughs) It smells like vinegar because that's what I put it in. (laughs) I... I sifted away little bits of that, I'm sure. Yeah. Little bits of that stupid bowl right. fell I'm through sure. our sieve. I'm sure we didn't. Yeah, we could have. Anyway, there's more. But, yeah, but okay, it, that's, that's. And he said, look, you know, you don't have the whole bowl. Mm-hmm. And really for a lot of this stuff, because it's broken and it's incomplete, it's most of it is worthless. But because this is Bonin and Morris. Right. It might be of interest to someone. Most collectors want whole pieces or museums. You mm-hmm. know, they want to sort of display a whole piece if they can. But this is sort of a special case. Um, and then he pointed at some of the supposedly less valuable redware stuff that we had. So one of the pieces that we have is this enormous redware pan. It's probably, I don't know, 15 inches in diameter. Um, and he and it's almost complete. There are like two little chunks that are missing. Um, and he sort of said, you can recreate those chunks. Actually, you can do it now with 3D printer. You can scan the bowl in and um, sort of do a subtract and figure out what's missing and make a little part that fits in there perfectly. Um, but he said, this is probably worth somewhere like $3,000. Which, <laughs> which is like not chump change to me at all. <laughs> and then the the little mug, the three legged mug, which is you know one of our favorite pieces. Uh, we had actually found out in the meantime. I don't think I mentioned it's called a pipkin. Uh, kind of, yeah. Yeah, I think I I said it once, but I didn't I didn't clarify pipkin, which is like the cutest word for a thing ever. Um, and the three little mu- three little legs are so that you can put it over the hearth stones to heat up whatever liquid or stew or whatever like is inside of it. a little French onion soup. Yeah, a little French onion soup garnished with lead. It's <laughs> a beautiful combination that will also just make you raring for war as well. Um, anyway, he's like, that's worth like $7,000, you know. <laughs> a really cool piece probably worth that much and i'm thinking like that's that's more than my car (laughs) like like i was (laughs) i drove this thing home in the mini cooper and it's worth more than the mini cooper actually um holy shit (laughs) so uh, in in sort of wrapping things up you know is is there anything else and uh, i i think at this point we brought up well you know this is this is amazing hearing that some of the stuff is actually valuable. Right. It, it and kind important. of makes us, yeah, it's, it's important. It's valuable, but we didn't get all of it because of the nature of the rush of digging it out. Um, uh, and it's, it's a shame because, you know, there's a whole second privy uh, that we haven't even dug into. Record scratch. <laughs> like every, he's like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. When we were doing that dig, um, you know, we we just right at the level that was the bottom of this privy. Uh, there was a second privy just across the way, and we started to find stuff, but we didn't. didn't we we dig thought, it out. yeah, you know, we figured it wasn't worth it, and um, so he's looking at us um, with this frozen expression on his face, like, "What the fuck are you? Did you just say to me?" <laughs> and uh, and and he's like, "Well, what do you need to dig the second privy?" Well, money really is the the main thing 
Oh, well, how much money? <laughs> <laughs> um, and I mean, this has been all such a ride, but it, it was like we don't even we don't even know. we don't know we about no the concept. second movie. We have no idea because we we can't just halt construction. Right, we're in the um, middle of construction, but but this is where the the gears start turning in my head mm-hmm. about whether this is possible. Okay. I am going to break a little bit from the uh, chronological present day mm-hmm. retelling of this story because we should address um, some of the history of this property mm-hmm. because obviously we're uncovering the history in literal objects coming out of the ground, but also because this history is totally fascinating to me. I have to tell you, first of all, as an Australian, as a woman, as, you know, not a white person, I, I, when I first came to America, I knew some about American history, like we did an American history module in modern history class in Brisbane, Australia, but I wasn't, um, what's the word? Um, founding father chic obsessed like I wasn't I'm not even that into Hamilton I know I know so sacrilegious um, it's just not something that felt like part of my history personally until I owned a property that vomited forth mm. items from this period that I could see and touch and feel like they were mine suddenly this history is part of my history. Suddenly, I am involved in the uh, in this lineage in a in a very physical way. All right. So, in the next episode, let's take it back to the 1600s. Yeah. Let's, let's go way back. Yeah. Let's leave the 21st century behind a little bit and um, figure out the origins of the property, which mean we have to go all the way back to the origins of. Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it'll also explain a few things, like why we keep talking about the Hannah Callow Hill stage mm-hmm. and uh, what that means to us. It all is a, a cascading series of events that if they didn't happen in that particular order, um, we wouldn't be here where we are now. Exactly. I'm Matt Dunphy. And I'm Melissa Dunphy. And you've been listening to The Bog House. You can find out more about our show at boghouse.thehanna.org. The Bog House is recorded at the Hannah Callow Hill stage in Philadelphia. Our theme music is by Up Your Cherry. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate and review if you like what you hear. But you left the bodies, didn't you? You son of a bitch, you left the bodies and you only moved the headstones! You only moved the headstones! <laughs>